Chapter 18 Just as delivering a salute became second nature to me, I, repeat, er, er, I repeated every any time I boarded Marine One or Air Force One or interacted with our troops. I slowly grew more comfortable and efficient in my role as Commander-in-Chief. The morning PDB became more concise as my team and I got better acquainted with a recurring cast of foreign policy characters, scenarios, conflicts, and threats. Connections that had once been opaque were now not obvious to me. I could tell you off the top of my head which Allied troops were where in Afghanistan and how reliable they were in a fight, which Iraqi ministers were ardent nationalists and which carried water for the Iranians. The stakes were too high, the problems too naughty, for any of this to ever feel routine, entirely routine. Instead, I came to experience my responsibilities the way I imagine a bomb disposal expert feels about clipping a wire or a tightrope walker feels as she steps off the platform, having learned to shed excess fear for the sake of focus while trying not to get so relaxed that I make a sloppy mistakes. There was one task I never allowed myself to get even remotely comfortable with. Every week or so, my assistant Katie Johnson sat on my desk a folder containing condolence letters to the families of fallen service members for me to sign. I'd close the door to my office, open the folder, and pause over each letter, re reading the name aloud like an incantation, trying to summon an image of the young man. Female casualties were rare, and what his life had been like, where he'd grown up and gone to school, the birthday parties and summer swims that he'd made up in his, made up his childhood the sports teams he'd played on, the sweethearts he'd pined for. I'd think about his parents and his wife and kids if he had them. I signed each letter slowly, careful not to smudge the heavy beige paper with my left-handed, sideways grip of the pen. If the signature didn't look the way I wanted, I'd have the letter reprinted, knowing full well that nothing I did would ever be enough. I wasn't the only person to send such letters. Bob Gates also corresponded with the families of those in Iraq and Afghanistan, though we rarely, if ever, talked about it. Gates and I had developed a strong working relationship. We met regularly in the Oval Office, and I found him to be practical, even-keeled, and refreshingly blunt, with the quiet confidence to both argue his case and occasionally change his mind. His skillful management of the Pentagon made me willing to overlook those times he tried to manage me as well, and he wasn't afraid to take on Defense Department's sacred cows, including efforts to rein in the defense budget. He could be prickly, especially with my younger White House staffers, and our differences in age, upbringing, experience, and political orientation made us something short of friends. But we recognized in each other a common work ethic and sense of duty, not only to the nation that had trusted us to keep it safe, but to the troops whose courage we witnessed every day and to the families they had left behind. It helped that on most national security issues, our judgments aligned. Entering the summer of 2009, for example, Gates and I shared a guarded optimism about developments in Iraq. Not that the conditions there were rosy. The Iraqi economy was in shambles. The war had destroyed much of the country's basic infrastructure, while plunging world oil prices had sapped the national budget. And due to parliamentary gridlock, Iraq's government had difficulty carrying out even the most basic tasks. During my brief visit there in April, I'd offered Prime Minister Maliki suggestions on how he might embrace needed administrative reforms and more effectively reach out to Iraq's Sunni and Kurdish factions. 
He'd been polite, but defensive. Apparently, he wasn't a student of Madison's Federalist Number 10. As far as he was concerned, Shiites in Iraq were the majority. His party's coalition had won the most votes. Sunnis and Kurds were, not, were hindering progress with their unreasonable demands and any notions of accommodating the interests or protecting the rights of Iraq's minority populations were an inconvenience he assumed only as a result of U.S. pressure. The conversation had been a useful reminder to me that elections alone don't produce a functioning democracy. Until Iraq found a way to strengthen its civic institutions and its leader-developed habits of compromise, the country would continue to struggle. Still, the fact that Maliki and his rivals were expressing hostility and mistrust through politics rather than through the barrel of a gun counted as progress. Even with U.S. forces withdrawing from Iraq's po Iraqi population centers, AQI-sponsored terrorist attacks had continued to decline, and our commanders reported a steady improvement in the performance of Iraqi security forces. Gates and I agreed that the United States would need to play a critical role in Iraq for years to come, advising key ministers, ministries training its security forces, breaking deadlock between factions, and helping finance the country's rec reconstruction. But barring significant reversals, the end of America's war in Iraq was finally in sight. The same couldn't be said about Afghanistan. The additional troops I'd authorized in February had helped check Taliban gains in some areas and were working to secure the upcoming presidential election. But our forces had not reversed the country's deepening cycle of violence and instability, and as a result of increased fighting over a wider swath of territory, usual U.S. casualties had spiked. Afghan casualties were also on the rise, with more civilians caught in the crossfire, falling prey to suicide attacks and sophisticated roadside bombs planted by insurgents. Afghans increasingly complained about certain U.S. tactics, nighttime raids on homes suspected of harboring Taliban fighters, for example, that they viewed as dangerous or disruptive that our commanders deemed necessary to carry out their missions. On the political front, President Karzai's re-election strategy mainly consisted of buying off local power brokers, intimidating opponents, and shrewdly playing various ethnic factions against one another. Diplomatically, our high-level outreach to Pakistani officials appeared to have had no effect on their continued tolerance of Taliban safe havens inside their country. All the while, a reconstituted al-Qaeda operating in the border areas with Pakistan still posed a major threat. Given the lack of meaningful progress, we were all eager to see what our new ISAF commander, General Stanley McChrystal, had to say about the situation. At the end of August, having spent weeks in Afghanistan with a team of military and civilian advisors, McChrystal turned into top-bottom assessment that Gates had asked for. A few days later, the Pentagon sent it to the White House. Rather than provide clear answers, it set off a whole new round of troublesome questions. Most of McChrystal's assessment detailed what we already knew. The situation in Afghanistan was bad and getting worse, with the Taliban emboldened, the Afghan army weak and demoralized, and Karzai, who prevailed in an election tainted by violence and fraud, still in charge of a government that was viewed by the Afghan people as corrupt and inept. What got everyone's attention, though, was the report's conclusion. 
To turn the situation around, McChrystal proposed a full-blown counterinsurgency coin campaign. Uh, a military strategy meant to contain and marginalize insurgents, not just by fighting them, but by simultaneously working to increase stability for the country's wider population, ideally quelling some of the fury that had driven insurgents to take up arms in the first place. Not only was McChrystal's proposing a more ambitious approach than what I'd envisioned when I'd adopted the Rydell Report recommendations in the spring, he was also requesting at least 40,000 troops on top of those I'd already deployed, which would bring the total number of U.S. troops in Afghanistan close to 100,000 for the foreseeable future. So much for being the anti-war president, Ack said. It was tough not to feel as if I'd just been subjected to a bait-and-switch, that the Pentagon's acquiescence on, to my more modest initial increase in 17,000 troops and 4,000 military trainers had been merely a temporary, tactical retreat on a path to getting more. Among members of my team, divisions over Afghanistan that had been evident back in February began to harden. Mike Mullen, the Joint Chiefs, and David Petraeus all endorsed McChrystal's coin strategy in its entirety. Anything less, they argued, was likely to fail and would signal a dangerous lack of American resolve to friends and foes alike. Hillary and Panetta quickly followed suit. Gates, who previously expressed concern over the wisdom of expanding our military footprint in a country famously resistant to foreign occupation, was more circumspect, but told me he'd been persuaded by McChrystal that a smaller U.S. force wouldn't work, and that if we coordinated closely with the Afghan security forces to protect local populations and better trained our soldiers to respect Afghan culture, we could avoid the problems that had plagued the Soviets in the 1980s. Meanwhile, Joe and a sizable number of NSC staffers viewed McChrystal's proposal as just the latest attempt by an unrestrained military to drag the country deeper into a futile, wildly expensive na nation-building exercise, and we could and should be narrowly focused on counterterrorism efforts against Al-Qaeda. After reading McChrystal's 66-page assessment, I shared Joe's skepticism. As far as I could tell, there was no clear exit strategy. Under McChrystal's plan, it would take five to six years just to get U.S. troop numbers back to where they were now. The costs were staggering, at least one billion for every thousand additional troops deployed. Our men and women in uniform, some on their fourth or fifth tours after close to a decade of war, would face an even greater toll. And given the resilience of the Taliban and the dysfunction of Karzai's government, there was no guarantee of success. In their written endorsement of the plan, Gates and the generals acknowledged that no amount of U.S. military power could stabilize Afghanistan as long as, a pers as, long as pervasive corruption and preying upon the people continuing to characterize governance inside the country. I saw no possibility of that condition being met anytime soon. Still, some hard truths prevented me from rejecting McChrystal's plan out of hand. The status quo was untenable. We couldn't afford to let the Taliban return to power, and we needed more. We couldn't afford to let the Taliban return to power, and we needed more time to train more capable Afghan security forces and to root out Al Qaeda and its leadership. As confident as I felt in my own judgment. I couldn't ignore the unanimous recommendation of experienced generals 
who'd managed to salvage some measure of stability in Iraq and were already in the thick of the fight in Afghanistan. I therefore asked Jim Jones and Tom Donilon to organize a series of NSC meetings where, away from congressional politics and media grousing, we could methodically work through the details of McChrystal's proposal, see how they matched up with our previously articulated objectives, and settle on the best ways forward. As it turned out, the generals had other ideas. Just two days after I received the report, the Washington Post re published an interview with David Petraeus in which he declared that any hope for success in Afghanistan would require substantially more troops and a fully resourced comprehensive coin strategy. After about 10 days later, fresh off our first discussion of McChrystal's proposal in the Situation Room, Mike Mullen appeared before the Senate Armed Forces Services Committee for a previously scheduled hearing and made the same argument, dismissing any narrower strategy as insufficient to the goal of defeating Al-Qaeda and keeping, US, keeping Afghanistan from becoming a future base of attacks against the homeland. A few days after that, on September 21st, the Post published a synopsis of McChrystal's report that had leaked to the Bob Woodward under the headline, McChrystal, More Forces or Mission Failure. This was followed in short order by McChrystal giving an interview to 60 Minutes and delivering a speech in London, in both instances promoting the merits of his coin strategy over alternatives. The reaction was predictable. Republican hawks like John McCain and Lindsey Graham seized on the generals' media blitz, offering the familiar refrain that I should listen to my commanders on the ground and fulfill McChrystal's requests. News stories appeared daily, hyping the ever-growing rift between the White House and the Pentagon. Columnists accused me of dithering and questioning whether I had the intestinal fortitude to lead a nation during wartime. Rom remarked that in all his years in Washington, he'd never seen such an orchestrated public campaign by the Pentagon to box in the president. Biden was more succinct. It's fucking outrageous. I agreed. It was hardly the first time that disagreements inside my team had spilled into the press, but it was the first instance during my presidency when I felt as if an entire agency under my charge was working its own agenda. I decided it was going to be the last. Shortly after Mullen's congressional testimony, I asked him and Gates to see me in the Oval Office. So, I said, after we'd taken our seats and offered them coffee, did I not make myself clear about how I wanted time to evaluate McChrystal's assessment, or does your building just have a basic lack of respect for me? The two men shifted uncomfortably on the couch. As is usually the case when I'm angry, I didn't raise my voice. From the day I was sworn in, I continued, I've gone out of my way to create an environment where everyone's views are heard, and I think I've shown myself willing to make unpopular decisions when I thought it was necessary for our national security. Would you agree with that, Bob? I would, Mr. President, Gates said. So when I set up a process that's going to decide whether I send tens of thousands more troops into a deadly war zone at the cost of hundreds of billions of dollars, and I see my top military leaders short-circuiting that process to argue their position in public, I have to wonder, is it because they figure they know better and don't want to be bothered answering my questions? Is it because I'm young and didn't serve in the military? Is it because they didn't like my politics? I paused. Letting the question linger. Mullen cleared his throat. I think I speak for all your flag officers, Mr. President, he said, when I say 
we have the highest respect for you in the office. I nodded. Well, Mike, I'll take your word on that. When I give you my word, that I'll make my decision about Stan's proposal based on the Pentagon's advice and what I believe best serves the interest of this country. But until I do, I said, leaning in for emphasis, I'd sure like to stop having my military advisors telling me what I have to do on the front page of the morning paper. Is that fair? He agreed that it was. We moved on to other matters. Looking back, I'm inclined to believe Gates when he said there was no coordinated plan by Mullen, Petraeus, or McChrystal to force my hand, although he'd later admit to hearing from a reliable source that someone on McChrystal's staff had leaked the General's report to Woodward. I know that all three men were motivated by sincere conviction in the rightness of their, op- of their position, and they considered it to be part of their code as military officers to provide their honest assessment and public testimony or press statements without regard to political consequences. Gates was quick to remind me that Mullen's outspokenness had aggravated President Bush as well, and he was right to point out that the senior officials in the White House were often just as guilty of trying to work the press behind the scenes. But I also think that the episode illustrated how just how accustomed the military had become to getting whatever it wanted during the Bush years, and the degree to which basic policy decisions about war and peace, but also about America's budget priorities, diplomatic goals, and the possible trade-offs between security and other values had been steadily farmed out to the Pentagon and the CIA. It was easy to see the factors behind this. The impulse after 9-11 to do whatever it took to stop the terrorists and the reluctance of the White House to ask any tough questions that might get in the way. A military forced to clean up the mess that had resulted from the decision to evade Iraq. A public that rightly saw the military as more competent and trustworthy than the civilians who were supposed to make policy. A Congress that was chiefly interested in avoiding responsibility for hard foreign policy problems. And a press corps that could be overly deferential to anyone with stars on their shoulders. Men like Mullen, Petraeus, McChrystal, and Gates, all of them proven leaders with a singular focus on the hugely difficult tasks before them, had simply filled a vacuum. America had been lucky to have those men in, those, in the positions they were in, and when it came to the later phases of the Iraq War, they may, they'd mostly made the right calls. But as I told Petraeus the first time we met in Iraq, right before I was elected, it was the job of a president to think broadly, not narrowly, and to weigh the costs and benefits of military action against everything else that went into making the country strong. As much as any specific difference over strategy or tactics, such fundamental issues, the civilian control of policymaking, the respective roles in the president and his military advisors in our constitutional system, and the considerations each brought to bear in deciding about war, became the subtext of the Afghan debate. And it was on these issues that the differences between me and Gates became more obvious. As one of Washington's savviest operators, Gates understood as well as anybody congressional pressure, public opinion, and budgetary constraints. But for him, these were obstacles to navigate around, not legitimate factors that should inform our decisions. Throughout the Afghan debate, he was quick to ascribe any objections Rahm or Biden might raise about the difficulty in rounding up the votes in Congress for the 30 to $40 billion a year in additional spending that McChrystal's plan might require 
or the weariness that the nation might feel after close to a decade of war as mere politics. To other people, though never directly to me, Gates would sometimes question my commitment to the war and the strategy I had adopted back in March, no doubt attributing it to politics as well. It was hard for him to see that what he dismissed as politics was democracy as it was supposed to work. That our mission was to be defined not only by the need to defeat an enemy, but, but by the need to make sure the country wasn't bled dry in the process. That questions about spending hundreds of billions on missile, missiles and forward operating bases rather than schools or, or health care for kids weren't tangential to national security, but central to it. That the sense of duty he felt so keenly towards the troops already deployed, his genuine admiral desire that they be given every chance to succeed, might be matched by the passion and patriotism of those interested in eliminating the number of young, Mar uh, young Americans placed in harm's way.